brilliant. And um, Barney is a member of our 5 p.m. congregation more generally. Great. And what do you do um, in your day job? Come here, let me get rid of this. I'll help you out. Brilliant. Um, what do you do in your day job normally, Barney? Um, I'm on now, perfect. <laughs> I am a, a trained medical doctor who's always felt like a bit of a wandering and rogue doctor because I found myself quite early on um, in my career working now in technology. Um, but there is, a, there is a good reason for that. Um, for me, uh, working in this NHS that we've just, um, just been praying for as a junior doctor um, showed this um, incredible... Uh, set of uh, patients that I would see every day, staff that I would be working with, um, diseases and conditions that we'd be uh, treating. But the biggest problem that myself and some of my colleagues could see in the system was that as staff, we couldn't actually communicate very well with each other and we couldn't share information, really sensitive information a lot of the time about patients we were looking after. We couldn't share that very well with each other. So I'm now working in technology to try and build a system that allows um, doctors and nurses and dietitians and physios and pharmacists, everybody working in the healthcare system as a professional person in the workforce, to share that information in a really simple and streamlined way. Sounds um, just amazing. Um, have you got particular kind of challenges in that, things that excite you? Yeah, it's extremely challenging um, because the NHS is a massive system, and we're also thinking about other systems in places like India and Australia. Um, and staff in the NHS have never been very well served by um, technology companies. They've often been given um, bad or imperfect systems and products and ways of doing things. And we're trying to obsess about the staff rather than their managers. And so that creates quite a clash sometimes um, and there's not always a lot of money in the NHS to pay for what we do um, so often we feel more like a charity than a business um, and there, there are a lot of um, a lot of challenges but we've we've had an amazing um, a few years doing that great so it's really fun but a bit challenging at points thank you um, can we pray for you Please, yeah. I think we're in really safe hands um, over this whole tef sort of topic of science and faith with you. So perhaps if you're comfortable, you might like to stretch out a hand to Barney and we'll, um, we'll pray for him as he brings God's word to us. Father, we thank you for Barney. We thank you for the call on his life and the adventure that you're taking him on. And we thank you that he loves you and he loves your scriptures. So as we sit under all of this this morning, would you open our hearts and minds to receive everything you have for us? And would you fill him to overflow? Amen. 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 Good morning, um, everybody. It's, it's a real privilege to be speaking. Um, I realized as I was cycling over past the Fulham 10K this morning that the reason I think I'm here doing the talks in church today, which are the first talks I've done in, in a church, despite having listened to lots, um, I think the reason is that there was a St. D's weekend away at the start of this year um, where there was a, 
speaker called Amy Orr Ewing who came along, who's a, a brilliant apologetics speaker who can explain questions about um, faith and reasons behind faith really well. She gave an opportunity on that weekend away to ask any questions and I asked a deliberately pernickety question um, that Tim the vicar found out about and I think this is the end result of uh, asking difficult questions and I can assure you I don't have the answers to all of these questions but they're things that I find um, particularly in, the, in this area of science and faith they're questions that I really enjoy grappling with and I hope you'll enjoy going on that journey with me for a few minutes now. So for me I'm not really a pure scientist I trained as a doctor um, and for me people have always been as interesting as processes and understanding the science um, behind how things work and it's only interesting to me understanding how stuff works when it's in the context of how that applies in real life so for example uh, at medical school you learn about lots of processes within um, metabolism and how our bodies break down um, the stuff that we put in them to provide energy and to allow us to function well one of those processes is called glycolysis and that glycolysis is the process by which we break down sugar in our diet and turn it into useful um, energy substrates and I remember as a first year medical student um, in Oxford learning about glycolysis and the dozens of enzymes and proteins that are involved in in that process and the reason that became fascinating to me was because actually at the end of that process and of all those steps happening in perfect sequence what happens is we get energy as, as humans and we can do our stuff. We can talk to people, walk around and do all the stuff that we need to do to function as human beings. And so every, every scientific process has a real world um, output and that's the bit that's interesting for, for me. So I'd love to um, basically open up two areas of thinking this morning and one is about thinking around how can you be rational as a sort of, as a sort of um, logical and scientific um, mind, but also take the Bible as your spiritual food and sustenance and really be changed by it. That's the first area. And the second area is I'd love to use that to think about how we can understand a very complex um, and often challenging scientific medical technological, ethical questions that are around us, around um, areas like dementia, as an example. Okay, so to start with then, on this area of the Bible and how does, how does God actually speak to us if we are naturally, like, like myself, rational people? Um, one of the really helpful things that I've heard on this is, is about separating our posture when we, when we read the Bible from how we would read scientific paper or how we would digest something that was that was um, scientific or academic in its nature and having that posture around the Bible of slowing down hearing this as God's voice um, co being contemplative um, and being in that that different posture leaning leaning into God rather than interrogating uh, with a biro like I would do a science paper and underlining and scribbling and it's not that dissecting process it's something um, something softer and it's something 
with a very deliberate posture. I found that really helpful. But that still leads, that still leads us with challenges. So for me, let's start with medical miracles, Jesus' miracles in, in the Bible. The place that I've got to in understanding um, the overcoming of physical laws by, by Jesus when performing a miracle is one of having a, a reaction of, wow, that's amazing. And going deeper into the science actually helps that. Let me, let me give you an example. In Luke 5, Jesus cleanses a leper with the words, be clean. And the passage here is a short one. It's Luke 5, verses 12 and 13. It says this. It happened when Jesus was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then, he, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him. So this is from Luke's gospel. Luke the doctor is, a, is an encouragement when reading a, a, a medical miracle. This was, a, this was written by a man who, at the time, knew a lot of what was to be known about the body and about medicine. And what's amazing about leprosy, having not seen it myself and having learned only a small amount about it, is leprosy is caused by a bacteria that's the same bacteria that causes TB or tuberculosis. It's a mycobacterium. It's a really difficult bacteria once it gets in, in the body to get rid of. And leprosy is a disease that progresses in two phases. There's the phase that we've all heard about where you get a skin reaction. I think you get lesions all over your skin driven by the body's immune response to that bacteria being inside you. And then there's a second process that happens later, which is where your nervous system begins to be eaten away, essentially, by that um, infection. And you lose sensation as your peripheral nervous system deteriorates. And we can only imply from this passage what, what stage of leprosy we think this got to. I, I assume this was quite advanced because this man is asking to be, to be healed, but he may have been early on. But let's assume he was right, very advanced and had, had, had leprosy for a year or more. Jesus has come and performed a miracle here. And what has actually happened can be grounded in the rational. There's a mycobacterium in this man that has, that has been eliminated, that has been destroyed and overcome. An immune response from this man's uh, white blood cells has been calmed and eased in some way. If the nerve damage stage had happened, then actually nerves have been regrown, okay? Iron channels in those nerves have been opened and changed. There are real physical processes happening in the, in the, in the click of a finger, miraculous moment. And for me, thinking about it in that way builds faith. Because I think, wow, that is incredible. Jesus has, has overcome disease in this process. It may be a rare thing to happen, but that's incredible that that's actually happened. So the response to a, a miracle can actually be wow, it can actually be, I'm, I'm really, um, really just um, moved by this and affected by this. So that's something of um, God's power in, in the miraculous. There are, there are two other parts of God's character that I think are really encouraging as we ground them in the rational. 
And they are God's knowledge of us and God's pride in us, alongside God's power. So, again, two very short um, excerpts from, um, from the Bible. The first is, is, sh- is showing to us God's knowledge of us. So in Psalm 139, in verses 13 and 14, it, it is written, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That's, that's the word that, um, that I'm using this morning on God's knowledge of us. So, so hold that in your mind and add to it God's pride in us. It's another simple passage from Luke 12, verses 27 and 28. It's about the lily. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So in in those excerpts about God's knowledge of us and God's pride of us, really in this idea of the fetus growing and God knowing us as he knits us together in our mother's womb, and also this idea of the lily being cared for by the Lord and God being proud of the lily. Again, if if we delve into the science of these things, even at a simple level, they become more spectacular. Because the the biblical explanation is simple, it's poetic, it's beautiful, and the science behind it only builds that up more. So with the fetus developing, um, we have all been one and we can't remember it, and I suspect many in the room have have been mothers and, and undergone this process, but there's an incredible series of changes that happen over nine months during a, the development of a fetus. Again, the, the, the genetic and transcription um, factors that are being turned on and the, the science behind every stage of development with each significant milestone as a pulse emerges, as digits emerge, as the brain develops and, and becomes more and more complex. These are incredible changes that are happening. And the simplicity of the biblical explanation is, you knit me together it's, it's, almost, um, it's almost just dismissive. It's so easy, but it's so complex, and it just gets that short explanation. And then on the, um, on the lilies of the field, I suspect many of us can remember from biology classes at school that you get taught about photosynthesis, about the xylem and phloem systems that move sugars and water up and down the, the plant. All of this stuff is happening in a plant, and then the simple um, biblical explanation is that the lily has glory. And I love this. I love that um, something so complex can be um, distilled in the Bible into something so simple, but the more that we understand about it, the more complete the picture becomes. So in that sense, the understanding of the science builds our faith. It doesn't ever tear it down. So I want to move on to think about, in some of the more challenging areas of medicine and technology and ethics, how do we hold ourselves as Christians in, the, in those areas? So starting with medicine, um, as Christians, I think we can understand that because we live in a fallen creation that is not yet restored, 
we have a, a rational understanding that our bodies are themselves flawed and that they are decaying, that they can be infected, that there can be disease processes and that we are all heading towards a physical death, which sounds um, depressing until we know that just as creation is being restored, God also loves life in us. And we're in this, um, we're in this um, process and this period now in our lives where as our friends and loved ones pick up diseases and as medical professionals care for them, what those professionals are doing is intervening to slow down or delay that process of decay and breakdown of the body. But there's also something else that's profound that's happening. It's a very human profession and it's a, it's a caring profession. And just as God partners with us in our personal suffering, we as healthcare um, professionals or as the loved ones of a patient with a condition, we have the chance to lean in and bear with and suffer with people with pain and with disease and with conditions. And that's one of the incredible things about um, being part of that medical process. With certain developments in medicine, it's just, it's just um, obvious to me that these need to be implemented everywhere. And there's no ethical conundrum. For example, a friend of mine last year won an award from um, the inventor James Dyson for creating the best neonatal incubator for low resource uh, settings. So what that, what that is, is a, a warm environment, basically a humid warm environment for preterm babies that's eco-friendly, sterile, lightweight, um, low cost, and basically should be bought by health systems and just put everywhere. Because you know, in 2020, 2019, babies shouldn't be dying because they can't be put in an incubator that can't, that, that, that's too expensive. So those sorts of questions I think are easy and they're, they're a case of resource allocation then there are other questions in medicine that are much harder to grapple with, like um, this area which is increasing because our society is becoming older, of dementia. I'm not an expert on dementia, but I, when I was working in um, neuroscience in a laboratory, I was working on the disease process that, that causes dementia and how we can create molecules that block parts of that process. And when we think about how those sorts of molecules should be trialed and brought into practice, I think the driving principle again is this one of, we need to intervene to reduce suffering for patients and their loved ones and with interventions that reveal people's character rather than remove it. And the reason dementia is a particularly crippling um, disease, or series, a set of diseases, is because people's personalities change and people's character seems to fade away and it seems to me that an ethical line on, on that kind of um, disease would be anything that, that builds that person's character and their capacity for connection has to be a, a good thing. But these are complex questions. The principle to, to take, take out of that I would say is engaging things that increase our humanity and our capacity for connection with each other and with God are good. These are good things that God is pleased with. And that's, that's a helpful rudder and a helpful question. 
um, to ask ourselves when these ethical questions arise. On technology, um, we're at this place in a society, and several times in this series, this quote has, has arisen from Mark Sayers about, we're drowning in freedoms, but we're thirsting for meaning. And with technologies, particularly our personal use of devices, we know we're in that place where we're addicted to our screens. We are um, always um, close to the next push notification or being hooked on a colorful um, background on a, on a MacBook or, or whatever, the, whatever the thing is. And again, I think we need a, the same rudder that, that guided those medical questions around dementia will guide how we use technology well. It's about how can we um, give tools um, for use that increase our humanity and our capacity for connection, not tear it, up, not tear it down. I know that I, in, in our office, I'm, I'm a sucker for getting absolutely buried in my MacBook screen at the expense of good quality uh, interactions with colleagues around and that I become less human and less connected because I'm, I'm engaged fully in, this, in, a, in a screen that's not, not a relationship. I was really motivated, actually I can see one of my friends Callum um, uh, at the back here, who brought me along to a uh, HTB leadership evening um, a few months ago in the Royal Albert Hall. And there was a speaker from an American, I think an Oklahoman church uh, called Craig, who has set up the Bible app, which I don't know how many people have on their phones, but it's an incredible app which has got half a billion downloads and hundreds of millions of active users. And the origin story of this app was that this guy in his church was sat down and saying, um, isn't it crazy, you go onto Google and the majority of struggling people or a lot of struggling men that he knew in particular were basically searching online for sex. And he said, what's the innovation we could use here that's, that's clever? And it was to capture the SEO, the, the search engine optimization for sex online and replace it with Bible online so that, so that, when, <laughs> so that when anyone searched for, for sex, they'd be hit with, hit with the Bible. And that became a very, very popular um, paired link and basically was the origin of a website that became an app on you know, Apple App Store and Android App Store that's become extremely successful, that's leveraged a lot of the um, psychological and behavioral insights around color schemes, design patterns, push notification reminders to like, gamification, to give you bronze medal if you read five days out of seven, silver medal if you get six days out, and to use a lot of these techniques to get you reading the Bible, and it's worked for half a billion people. And I loved that because it was really pairing a lot of the um, learnings around what builds, what makes an effective technology with how can we get people actually centered on reading the Bible as an example. So I thought that was, that was a brilliant example of in this age of drowning in freedoms but thirsting for meaning, what's, what's a good technology? Uh, and the, the final um, questions are on these really emerging areas um, of science and technology like, for example, around genome editing, where we can change our genes or we can change the, the genes of developing fetuses to choose particular traits like eye color or hair color, as an example. Um, or in the area of transhumanism, 
and the idea where that humans' brains can be now interfaced with a computer and memory or processing power from the computer can be uh, used to build upon memory or processing power in our own brains. These sound like science fiction, these concepts, but they're not. These are real concepts that are um, certainly applied in labs around the world, and these are the questions that Christians need to have a, a voice on. Um, again, the same rudder that is, does this increase our capacity for connection with each other and with God, I think is a good guiding principle um, in these areas. So that's, uh, that's more or less what I wanted to share, but just to sort of recap, I know it's covered a lot of areas, but the bits that I've been so encouraged by um, in my own uh, journey and my own faith developing are moments that often occur outside of church. It doesn't have to be in the church walls where understanding how the world works or seeing something incredible cause me to throw my arms out and raise my face to, to the sky and say, wow, this is incredible. And it's, it's that um, moment of adoration that's probably my most authentic uh, worship. And what's been amazing has been reading the Bible and seeing the poetic and the simplicity, uh, the, the poems and the, and the simplicity of the Bible, be grounded in deeper scientific understanding only builds that faith. So that's really been really significant for me. It doesn't tear it down. And then understanding these areas that are emerging in, in medicine and science and technology and ethics. Well, actually, there's a principle where we know that God loves life and we know that God loves us connecting with each other. And so if we can embrace technologies and advances that allow us to connect more richly and more deeply with each other, and with God, then that's a really helpful defining question and principle. So thanks very much uh, for listening.